personal assistant of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, uh, the head of his entire household. But Potiphar's wife, of course, had other intentions for Joseph. And when he didn't comply, she lied about him, accused him of assault, which landed him in or where the king's prisoners were confined. Let me pick up at verse 21 of chapter 39, actually. just He says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. Chapters 39 and 40 both have 23 verses. Both are presented as deliberate prelude stories, if you will, to set up God's ultimate design for bringing Joseph to Egypt. Don't forget that. The end of the book of Genesis is going to tell us that this is a design. This is a plan as everything was. In addition to God's presence with Joseph, he's given the wisdom to interpret dreams, which will be the method we find through which he will come to the attention of Pharaoh. But if you were Joseph, it may or may not feel like God is the one that has control of your life. Like anything and everyone but God are controlling the steps of your life is probably how it felt in the moment. But this world is not in the hands of human beings. No matter how much it seems like that, it is not in the hands of innocent victims. It is not in the hands of pagan pharaohs or vindictive brothers or scorned women or well-meaning forgetful men. On the borders of the promised land and many years after in Babylonian exile, Israel, who were reading this, desperately needed to know that God had complete determinative control over the future, because the future was their future. And if God was not there, if God could not overcome the will of evil men in order to keep his promises, in what could Israel really place their hope? All throughout Scripture, it becomes apparent that God is often at work through the plans and intentions of evil people to preserve his own people, which means God has to have a certain amount of exhaustive control in order to make things happen as he wants them to happen. In the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, of course, this reality will culminate to show us that even the greatest evil and darkest schemes and strategies of human beings are ultimately the servants of a sovereign God to accomplish his will, whether that was their intention or not. You and I need to know this and believe it tonight as we look to our future, beloved. Maybe more than ever. And again, I don't say things like that because it was less important in the past to know it per se. It's that as life begins to press in, these are some of the things we need to know and cling to like we never have before. We are not only fully dependent on, but completely safe in the hands of a sovereign God who knows and controls the future in order to work out his promise of salvation. Let's pray 
together. Father, we thank you so much that you are sovereign, that you are God at all times and in all things, over all peoples and plans. And so, Father, we look to you tonight. May this text speak to us what you breathed into it, Father. And for that reason, please consume me. Help me preach the truth. Help me preach it clearly for the sake of your people and for the sake of all who will listen. Let us believe what this text teaches us. For your word has all authority in your church and over your people. And we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first four verses of chapter 40. Sometime after this, we don't know how long has passed, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in Custody. So remember, again, Joseph had become the overseer of his master's house, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, but had then been in prison due to a lie. Confidence that God was with him might have been growing thin the more time that passed, right? But even in prison, Joseph rises to a place of great responsibility. Here in Genesis 40, two of Pharaoh's officers are thrown in prison also, his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. These two have very important roles because they have access to the king's food and to the king's drink. It was a constant fear in these cultures that a king could be poisoned. Someone could try to off him that way. And so Pharaoh's entrusted their lives literally to these men. It wouldn't have been a great gig because if something was poisoned, you were going to die before the king did. So, But it was a very important one. Pharaoh's entrusted their lives to such men. Sometimes even very close relationships would develop. But... The text isn't specific on the details here, but these men had committed some type of offense that had made Pharaoh so angry with them that he put them in prison. While in prison, in verse 4, Joseph is assigned to attend to their needs. How fortuitous, right? Verse 5, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt. What is more random than dreams? Right? I mean, what is more just, who knows, than our dreams? One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them. To me, two men, two dreams, two interpretations. Both dreams have left both men troubled because neither knows how to interpret them. And apparently in this culture, you had to, right? Joseph could see that they were troubled and so he asked them why. Dreams to them could be omens of good things or bad things. A lot of stock was placed in them. Interpreting dreams, by the way, was a very serious business in ancient Egypt. There would normally be attendants, professional attendants in the court of Pharaoh all the time who studied dreams, interpreted dreams, but prisoners didn't have access to that. And so the fact that in a culture like that, two different men both have these dreams on the same night was most likely one of the reasons they were so troubled by them and what they might mean. Look at verse 8 again. They said to him, we have had dreams and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, 
Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph knew something about the power of dreams, didn't he? Remember, a dream or dreams have shaped Joseph's entire life. That's how he ended up here, in a very roundabout but specific way. In fact, it turns out God can declare the future through dreams. Joseph knows this, or at least used to know it or believe it. Did you know, beloved, that dreams and their interpretations belonged to God? Did you know that? That even what we experience in private as we sleep is a matter of divine knowledge and prerogative. Now, that doesn't mean that when you have like 30 pizza rolls and some Doritos right before you go to bed, that your subsequent dream about, you know, the space aliens that are riding bikes with your grandmother and they're all drinking slushies and singing the national anthem, that doesn't mean that that has a hidden theological meaning, right? doesn't mean that every dream has some magical meaning. It speaks to a much greater truth about God and human existence when we read what we read in verse 8. God has absolute knowledge of and control over the future to the extent that he can create images of what is to come in our minds metaphorically as we sleep. He is sovereign, beloved, is what that means. God is sovereign. God determines the meaning of dreams because God has already ordained the future to which dreams speak. His knowledge is exhaustive. It has no limits I mean, think of the aware, God is aware of what would happen if different choices were made. God, God is, God comprehends the scope of everything. This is exhaustive knowledge. And this is the knowledge he gives to Joseph for his purposes in Egypt. Pick it up in verse nine. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So again, in the chief cupbearer's dream, he sees a vine with three branches The vine buds, blossoms, produces clusters of ripened grapes. Then the cupbearer took Pharaoh's cup, pressed the grapes into it, and gave the cup to Pharaoh. Now, just imagine, if if you don't have Joseph there and you dream that, imagine the myriad of meanings you could get from a dream like that. Right? Just imagine the endless speculation, which is about all we can do with our dreams is speculate. But Joseph tells him exactly what it means, down to the details. The three branches represent three days. In three days, this is extremely specific. The cupbearer will be restored to his position and place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as he had formerly done so often. We'll see if that comes true at the end of the text. In the meantime, notice the words of Joseph here. Listen to these words in verse 14. Only remember me 
when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. Joseph is 100% confident that he's correct. Notice that. But verse 15, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Remember me. Joseph asks the cupbearer to remember him. There has been much remembering in Genesis. God remembered his covenant with Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah. He remembered Rachel, enabling her to give birth to Joseph's mother. Now Joseph is asking Pharaoh's chief cupbearer to do the same. For all Joseph's amazing ability to interpret dreams, he is still in great need of escape. You would think that with such knowledge and ability and favor, this man would constantly be in complete control of his situation. And yet he isn't. He's in control of nothing. He's still needful of rescue. He's completely dependent on God to act, even in ways he can't perceive. Relying on the cupbearer here will prove absolutely pointless. Joseph's future is in the hands of God, even though what seems most readily helpful to him is the cupbearer. What is his request? Get me out of this house. Get me out of Egypt. Give me exodus, beloved. Get me out of Egypt. This cry will come again in the story of God's people. I was stolen, he says. God's law has been violated here even But who is in charge of the future, beloved? Who remembers his people in bondage? Who can bring about a true exodus from Egypt, from this situation? But there were two men and two dreams, remember, so there are also two interpretations. Pick it up in verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. So again, imagine the morning after they woke up, they're comparing their dreams, why they would have been troubling, or you can imagine why they would have been troubling to them. There are eerie similarities here, especially again in a culture that puts such great stock in dreams. And so they're thinking there has to be a meaning. Joseph's interpretation of the cupbearer's dream was very favorable And so the baker assumes it will be the same for him. So he says, here's the dream I had. Now tell me what great news you have for me. Verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. All right. So far, so good. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Thanks. Right. It's just horrible. In the baker's dream, there were three cake baskets on his head. In the highest one, there are all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh to eat, but birds were eating the food out of the basket. Again, just it's so random and strange. And then you wake up and there's another guy that had a dream of threes. And so Joseph says that the three baskets in his dream are also three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up the head of the baker. But not in the sense of being lifted up in favor like the cupbearer was. The baker will be hung on a tree and birds will eat his flesh. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, 
he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So Joseph's interpretations are perfectly, literally fulfilled. This wisdom, his wisdom is clearly manifested. Joseph is obviously a very powerful, a very wise man. It would have been assumed that Pharaoh was the be-all, end-all of knowledge in this culture. And now it seems like knowledge might rest somewhere else. So what does this great power give to Joseph? Well, we'll find out next week that in the immediate sense, it gives him nothing but two more years in prison. It achieves nothing for two more years, and we don't even know how long it's been so far. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The text ends with Joseph hopeless, still in prison. It didn't work out. His hope went completely unfounded, and therefore he's presumed hopeless at the end of this text. You can imagine how excited Joseph was when he realized his ability to interpret dreams, which seemed so much like a gift and a sign of God's favor on his future back in chapter 37, might now gain him his release. And all his hopes for release are resting in the cupbearer, simply remembering what happened and mentioning him to Pharaoh. At least that's certainly what he thought. All my eggs are in that basket. Right? God is often nice to have there for our destiny, our eternal destiny. But he really isn't concerned with helping us in the moment, right? He doesn't walk through prison cells in ancient Egypt. But maybe he does. Maybe he does. Beloved, he even worked in the dreams of two pagan Egyptians to put Joseph in the position to gain the attention of Pharaoh. Right? God just speaks into the minds of these men and creates these dreams. Later, God would raise up another Pharaoh so that he might show his power in him and that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Romans 9.17 Quoting Exodus 9.16, that glory for God came about through the exodus from Egypt. God got glory, Israel got salvation. That plan was set into motion through the dreams of Joseph, the jealousy and hatred of his brothers, the scheming of Potiphar's wife, and the dreams of a cupbearer cup and a baker in prison. Now just think about all the sovereign working that has to be taking place to put all of that into action and make it happen. Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the same things, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The narrative of Genesis where God has made the promises that will shape creation, is adamant to show us that this God is sovereign. That he is in complete, determinative control of everything, even down to the details. The human spirit does not like this, and so I would implore you, I would encourage you, go fight with God about it. 
Go tell him it's not fair. Go tell him you don't like it. And if he is not, beloved, if he's not like that, forget all the philosophical problems it creates. Forget that for a minute. If he is not like that, his promises ultimately are just a nice sentiment that he's actually powerless to bring about. I don't deny all the philosophical problems that are raised. Again, when we start talking about things like sovereignty versus free will, I I understand all that. But let's lay that aside for just a moment and consider this. What hope do we have if God is not sovereign? If our free will is the determinative, is the determinative force in the universe, even for a moment. What if God has ceded, which the Bible never says, but what if God has actually ceded to us ultimate, final, determinative control? And everybody believes that at some point God is going to be sovereign, even if they don't believe he's sovereign now. One day, God will stop being merciful to sinners. It will end, right? Except for those he's saved. So either he's like that all the time or he's just going to end up being like that in the end. But there's no escape from this. There's no escape from this. One day God will say, no more. No more time. No more mercy. It's done. I'm finished. So one way or the other, he does what we're all so troubled by him being all the time. When God accurately and precisely predicts the future through the dreams of two men who don't even know his name or worship him, we are learning something that we desperately need to know. And it's very simple. This isn't front page news. God is in charge of the future and we are not. We're not. Do you think death is what the baker wanted to happen to him. I doubt it. We know it wasn't what he wanted, but that's what happened. Why? Well, because God wanted to prove a point, And God is in charge. Not human desire. God interrupts our free will all the time. I, I, I don't know where the argument came from that he doesn't do this because he's a gentleman. No thanks. We need better than a gentleman on the throne of the universe. How many things do you want right now that aren't happening? How many things did you want that God didn't give you? How many things have you wanted to stop that haven't stopped? What are we going to do? As it becomes increasingly apparent throughout our lives that God is sovereign That God is in charge, that God is calling the shots, that his will is what is ultimately going to be done, not ours. What are we going to do with this? Because you can't just repress it and pretend it doesn't happen that way. It happens that way very often. Are we going to reject him? Are we going to doubt him? Are we going to leave him? Beloved, his sovereignty is only a threat to you and I if he isn't good. And we know better than that. We know better than that. Why is the sovereignty of God such a threat to us? Like, in whose hands do we want 
the shots to be called. I mean, think the conclusions that we make, think them through to their unavoidable end, and then ask yourself if that's the way you really want it to be. How comforting it would have been for Israel to know as they headed into uncharted lands that God was sovereign. Right? Think about how much that would mean to them. That what he said he would do, he will bring about. Think about how that affected them at the everyday level when they heard God say things like, no, 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 fight the battle, you'll win. You'll win. I will be with you. When God says things like that, it means he is going to make something happen regardless of what people do or say. God made Israel win because God was sovereign. Right? I mean, this, we see this again and again and again in Scripture. God, you remember Gideon and Judges? God's always creating dreams in the minds of pagans to tell them what is going to happen. It might look like bread rolling down a hill, but then you hear trumpets and there's smashing clay pots and there's fire all around you and then you're killing each other and you lose. Right? This is our God. This is not for theological wrangling. It's, it's not. It's, it's, it's way past time to keep having this arguing about whether or not God is sovereign, like completely, determinatively. This truth is for the stability of our very souls as we look tonight to our future. Beloved, whose will do we want to have the final say in our salvation? Think about that for a minute. You want it to be up to you or up to him? In whose hands do you want the salvation of the people you keep praying for that keep rejecting Christ? Do you want it in their hands or do you want it in God's hands? Your answer will tell you whether or not you believe God is good and can be trusted. I want it to be the one who determines the future by his word, not mine. That's what I want tonight. I don't want my salvation or anyone I love. I don't want it up to me at the end of the day. I don't. Because I don't always believe God is my salvation. I often doubt whether or not I'll be saved. Sometimes I don't even want to keep going. Sometimes I don't know what to tell my children when they ask questions. I know the verses. I understand. But sometimes I don't know what to say. So, when that's the case, does God's promise over me become void when I vacillate back and forth? Or is God better than that? Is God's word stronger than mine? Is his word final? Because if his isn't and mine is, what hope do I have? What hope does the world have? We have to understand the implications of the things we believe because it's the unsaid things that are shaping how we think and feel. It's the things sitting in the back of our heads tonight that are actually determining how we really feel inside. We can fake it all day. We can say the right things that make it seem like we're confident and we have hope and we're thinking correctly. But deep down inside, the voice that nobody else hears, which by the way, now we know God is sovereign there too. That's where all these things become real. Nothing seemed to be going right for Joseph. Nothing. I mean, what has the last year been? Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment again and again and again. And now we have this. 
this election, and who knows what is going to change. He had been sold as a slave to Egypt. Think about what this man has been through. Sold as a slave to Egypt. Of course, that's after he was put in a pit by his brothers, falsely accused, thrown into prison, and then the clouds finally break for a moment in prison. There's a glimmer of hope. Wait, you had, you had dreams? Well, if I interpret his dream, maybe he can let Pharaoh know about me. And then I can talk and it'll come out that I've been falsely accused and the story will go public and, and I can get out. No, the man forgot. How do you forget such a thing? If, if I woke up and told some guy, I had a dream and, uh, there was a duck and it landed on my head and it, it, uh, poked at my left cheek and then there was a, a goose. And it put, and he tells me what that means, and then it comes true. I'm not going to forget that. This man completely forgot. Nothing changes for Joseph for two more years. Two years in prison, I think, I think it works like dog years. I think two years in prison is 14 years in real life. It would just feel like such a long amount of time. I wonder if Joseph started to feel like he was spinning his wheels, like his life was going nowhere. Right? There's no meaning. It doesn't matter. No, beloved, God is a God of plan and promise. He is always at work to accomplish our salvation. Always. Do you hear what I said? God is always working in your life to achieve his promise for you all the time. He's never just sitting there. And that's what we see in the life of Joseph. God does not forget. And his sovereign power, seen here in his exhaustive knowledge of the future through dreams, guarantees that he will bring about his word for us. Joseph doesn't realize it, but he is completely dependent on God to act. He needs God to remember, not the cupbearer. If God remembers, it doesn't matter whether the cupbearer does or not. And my point is not that Joseph was being sinful in verses 14 and 15. My point is that at the end of the day, our cupbearer remembered us and drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you and me. He remembered me before I was born. He knew our names. He knew every sin he was dying for. Every single one of them. He knew our failures, our dreams, and he lived for us and died for us and rose for us because he remembered God's promise of mercy to us. Beloved, it may seem like the powers we need to ensure our safety and our deliverance are the ones we have to control or put in place, but that is a myth. Do you feel hopeless or afraid tonight as you look to the future based on who has the power now in our nation? Oh, we need God to remember us. We need God to get us out. We need God to do a miracle. And beloved, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the proof that he has already done it and will 
do it again. The fulfillment of every promise he made to the world, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, to you and me. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 The reason God makes promises to accomplish his will is because he is sovereign. When God promises to do something, he's telling us what his word is going to accomplish, not something he hopes he can pull off if everything works out and goes the way that it should because we're really in charge and not him. This power creates dreams in a prison in Egypt, beloved. Joseph is just one man on the earth at this point. And God is speaking through the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker of Pharaoh in this place called Egypt. He is God everywhere. These dreams weren't things God just happened to notice and then use. They were vehicles for him. To accomplish his purpose in Egypt and in so doing, show Joseph that he was not forgotten. Imagine hearing that in Israel. It's a foreshadow that Israel won't be forgotten. When she ends up enslaved and stolen in Egypt too, remember, God would get her out also. And both of those deliverances now mean our exodus beloved. Our final salvation, our final deliverance is coming. God will get us out of here. We are not only fully dependent on, but completely safe in the hands of a sovereign God who knows and controls the future in order to work out his promise of salvation. Always I don't know if, if it's so weird when you read a book and then watch a movie about the book and, and how it's, it's so celebrated that the director of a movie or a screen play writer can take liberties and change the story so that it, it uh, shows their vision of the story. And I mean, and that's, that's fine in the world of art. And, and I suppose that's kind of cool. If you, if an author says, you know, yeah, I mean, tell the story how you like it. Tell, but I mean, the, the Word of God isn't like that. Like, the Word of God isn't like that. We're, we're not creating our own vision of things. God is the author of this book, and the book is closed. It's, we don't get to reinterpret the future. We don't get to decide that this actually means this, and this actually means that. And We need so much to know that God is present. In prison, in bondage, in suffering, in rejection, in despondency, at the cross. Since God is sovereign, He can use or even ordain the worst evil as a means of working out His purpose for us. Why do we think we see that so often in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings? Because that's the pattern God is reminding Joseph and Israel and us in Genesis 40 that he is in charge of everything, even down to the details. You get that great passage in Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every turn is from the Lord. We mentioned that before. We got a new game uh, for New Year's Eve at my house. It was called Throw Throw Burrito. 
That's what it's called. And, and the, through the course of the game, there are these foam burritos on the table. And if you lay down a certain card, you just pelt each other with these foam burritos. It's a wonderful game. Every card is by the hand of the Lord. You say, well, that's preposterous. No, no, no. That's the universe God made. God calls all the shots. God is in charge. And whatever way, and beloved, I'm not being facetious or cynical, in whatever way that is hurtful to hear or troubling or confusing to hear, we have to push ourselves and go a little bit further than our own reason and say, how else would I like it to be? Which is a question of who you want sitting on the throne of the universe. Make no mistake about this. I can't stop thinking about it, right? Elections don't actually decide presidents. God does. God, that doesn't mean God approves of who's in office. But I guarantee you whoever is in office is his pick for whatever his purpose might be. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Period, beloved. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have no understanding, just like he did for the baker and the cupbearer through Joseph. So, beloved, you be careful when you think an election has now determined who is in charge of your life or in charge of your destiny. That is not the case tonight, and it never will be. Who knows Who knows what God is doing in raising up one king over another in the moment? Who knows what God is doing? Who knows what his purpose is for setting up this king and not that king? Who knows? Beloved, we know. We know. We live in the last days. You see, the next thing on the clock, you know what that is, right? He returns. He returns. And if these days are God's means of getting us there, then let them come. Let them come. Could you imagine if it's on our age, in these days, that we see it with our eyes, the sun split the eastern sky in half. And the trumpet, imagine if it's our days. He is sovereign. And not only are we dependent on him, we are safe in him. He is in charge of everything. God is present all the time. Beloved, we are never forgotten. We are never cast aside Don't let bad Bible interpretation or teaching let you think America is a recapitulated Israel. And if we mess up on our covenant end, that curses will come. Beloved, that is a mockery of what the cross has accomplished. Jesus bore my curse. There is no longer one to be had. Jesus bore all of God's wrath against me. He absorbed every ounce of it. None remains. I can't lapse back into a place of curses and wrath. Doesn't matter where I live. 
Right? We, we, we keep thinking we're being deliberately punished for something we didn't do every time something goes bad. Read the Bible. Things go bad. And yes, there are consequences if you mess up, if you make bad decisions. Absolutely. That may be why you end up in prison. You might also end up in prison because you ended up in the wrong house and a nasty lady accuses you of something and you go to prison. Then what? You're not being cursed. Jesus took care of the curse. He took care of the wrath. We live in a busted world. Don't be fooled. Our covenant is the new covenant. For those in that nation, there are no curses. Look up to Christ. With every passing day, our redemption draws nigh. Who can separate you from his love if he is sovereign? Who can make God stop loving you? You? Me? Well, then he's not very powerful. God remembers when all others forget. And what we find is that when God remembers, it looks like Exodus. He remembers with salvation. You and I are secure tonight in His hands. Period. Therefore, rest Live or die, we will be with him.